name Emily and I wish I knew more about how to let go of a shift after I finished. Hi, my name's Joseph and I wish when I started I'd learn more about how to communicate with patients, family and friends. Hi, my name's Lily and I wish I knew more about dressing selection for wound care. Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crow. I'm Jesse Spur, and this is a podcast by, for, and with the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things. My name is Liz Crow, and I'm Jesse Spur. And we're excited this morning to be welcoming Beck Cooley, who is the Gender Service Coordinator here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Hi, Beck. Hello. Now, I have to be honest here. I've known Beck for a long time because she is a social worker. She's now heading up this amazing, innovative new service. Beck, how on earth did you come to be doing this job and what's it like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's never something I thought I would end up doing in social work. I've kind of worked through Queensland Health for a long time now in various roles. Um, I started at the RBWH in 2018 as a team leader in the ICU and surge team and just did a little transfer over to the gender service when they had a vacancy and um, I didn't really know what I was doing and it was only meant to be for a short time but I ended up absolutely loving it and loving the role and loving the team and loving all the people who we get to work with and provide care to. So three and a half years later, I'm still there. Yeah, it's the best job that I have ever had. Awesome. So in terms of just the functions, because it's, it's not a role that a lot of people will naturally have an inherent understanding of what you do. So what does a normal sort of day in your job look like? Uh, yeah, I suppose every day is different. We have a multidisciplinary team. So we've got social work, psychology, psychiatry, speech pathology and sexual health and a GP with special interests. So we're a mixed bag. Um, basically, we provide outpatient care to people who identify as gender diverse and who are wanting to transition or who are wanting some support in exploring their gender identity. So we do all planned outpatient care. And as a service coordinator, I suppose I just kind of run the day-to-day and manage all of the issues that come with that as a team leader. But yeah, that's basically what the team does. And so they'll kind of go through a, a journey from start to finish and, and help we help them to figure out what they want and their goals and how to get there. So that's a great lead into your five things. What did you have as your number one thing that we should understand as healthcare professionals in this field? Yeah, so I suppose the number one thing that people need to know and understand is what is gender diversity? And it's just so critical to understand that. And I suppose in order to understand what gender diversity is, you you need to go back to, well, what is gender? What is sexuality? And what is sex? And what's the difference between the three of them? Can you explain that to us? <laughs> yeah, sure. So sex is something that we're assigned at birth based on our biological and our physical attributes Um, and that's typically male or female and then there's also intersex variations. Um, Gender is more around the social constructs around that so your masculinity or your femininity and how you express that and how you identify inside. And so historically they've been considered to be binary concepts so you're either male or female 
And that's just not the case. It's really on a spectrum. So, you know, you can have male sex or female sex or you can be somewhere in, t- in between. About 1.7% of the population um, has intersex variations. Same thing with gender. You don't have to be either male or female. You can identify somewhere along that spectrum. And so being assigned male or female at birth with your sex has then we've always also been assigned the same gender and that's just not always the case. So that's where gender diversity comes in. So gender diversity is an umbrella term that we use to describe um, people who have different gender identities that diverge from the binary norm. So I, I'm going to take the role of saying, you know, I know nothing. Let's pretend I know absolutely nothing. Can you explain some of those terms to me? Like, so what does non-binary mean? Yeah, so non-binary is used to describe somebody who doesn't identify as male or female. And so they often use pronouns they and them. And then what does gender fluid mean? Yeah, so that's um, usually somebody who um, whose gender fluctuates. So they can identify more masculine or feminine on any day and maybe express themselves differently and that might change throughout their lives. And what is cisgendered? Yeah, so cisgender is – so I'm cisgendered. So cis comes from the Latin term meaning on the same side as. So somebody who identifies – as the a sex that they were assigned at birth. So I was assigned female at birth and I identify as female. So I'm cisgendered. So can you explain the difference for me? What is the difference between cisgendered and heterosexuality? Yeah, so cisgendered is when you, as I just said, you are the same gender as what you're assigned. You identify as the same gender. Sexuality is a completely different concept to gender. So... I had one of my consumers just have just give the best description of the difference between gender and sexuality and um, they described it as gender is who you go to bed as and sexuality is who you go to bed with. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so yeah. much. Yeah, that's yeah. gold. Um, what's dead name? Yeah, so dead naming is a term that's used in the community when – so often when you um, – if you transition or if you identify as trans or gender diverse, you might change your name um, so that it aligns with who you are, who how you identify. And so the dead name is the name that – your legal name that you were given at birth. And um, for a lot of people, being dead named can be really triggering and cause a lot of distress. So, so in the same context, I suppose, as being misgendered. Correct. Yeah. So in the healthcare realm, obviously, um, someone's transitioning or identifies very differently to how they were born. If you, if I was someone who was transitioning and then someone said Elizabeth Crow and that's not my name now, it's not only – it's offensive. Yeah, it's triggering. It's yeah. offensive. It's disrespectful, yeah. essentially. And there are going to be times where we make mistakes and unfortunately we work within a system, uh, IT systems that don't allow for 
name changing and that sort of thing. So it, it does make it difficult for staff to uh, not make errors. Um, I guess we need to just really try and be aware of the impact that it will have on some of our gender diverse patients. And I think some of this crosses over just into good relational practices of actually, it's one thing that I've done for a lot of years whenever I meet a patient for the first time is saying, what do you like to be called? Whether that's a gender thing or just an intro into them going, oh yeah, Dave or my name, um, Bluey or like, so yep. it builds rapport from the offset anyway, That's right. but also gives us an opportunity to get into a conversation that we may not have got into in terms of gender expression as well. That's right. Yeah. And it's demonstrating respect for that person and that you value how they feel about themselves and yeah, how they prefer to be called. And what do you think are the implications for, you know, gender diverse people when we as a society or as healthcare professionals continually get that wrong? Yeah, it, it really has a huge impact on the gender diverse community. Um, you know, I've worked with a lot of gender diverse people. We have consumers in our service and I talk to them frequently about what's the impact on accessing healthcare when these things keep happening to you. And I've heard some really horrible, devastating stories. You know, people stop accessing healthcare when they really need it. You know, I had to provide support to a, a trans female who had a stroke and discharge against medical advice from another hospital because she was so traumatised by the relation, well, the lack of relationship and the lack of care that she had. So she had really serious medical event and didn't receive the care that she needed. So frightening. It's mm. terrible. Um, I guess the, to move us from our first thing, which is essentially knowing what it means and some of the vocabulary of gender diversity, I'd like to sort of just wrap up that section with saying is there a resource that you would recommend for people to go to because we're conscious that they won't necessarily stop here yep. so for to expand on just on the vocabulary and understanding yeah absolutely there is a lot on the internet but we do have a queensland health resource available on queps so you just need to um, search lgbtiq plus and it comes up to the page and there's a there are documents and resources there excellent thank you yeah perfect I guess um, your next number two for you is around the importance of pronouns, names and language. Yeah. Um, can you expand on that for us, please, Beck? Yeah. Look, I have asked many trans and gender diverse people if there's one thing you need to get across to people, like about what's important for them to understand you or for you to feel safe and respected, the single most important thing that I hear all the time is pronouns. So using the correct pronouns with people is the most important thing for gender diverse people in my understanding from what I've been told. So this is something that was really surprising to me mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you see people with their signature at work or on Twitter or on Instagram, you know, having she, her, he, him, they, them. And I thought you know, that's something that doesn't relate to me. I, I don't need to do that. And recently had my eyes open about how profoundly important this was. Mm. Can you explain why it's important for all of us to do that, no matter how we identify? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's really important for cisgendered people to normalise pronouns. Um, you know, it's part of being an ally, really. And 
To use the correct pronoun for somebody who is gender diverse, from what I've been told, is just that it is it creates a sense of safety for them. And to similarly to to misgender somebody and to use the incorrect pronouns tells a gender diverse person that they're not valued, they're not respected, and that they're not safe to be who they are. And so it's really important that people who aren't gender diverse normalise the use of pronouns in society. I guess in terms functionally as well, that allows us to get into conversations um, without actually expressly going in, oh, see in your chart you are trans or you you are non-binary because there's that risk, I suppose, and this will move us towards our next point, which is don't make assumptions, point number three. But there's a risk in making the assumption because it's documented somewhere that someone is socially transitioned mm-hmm. um, and also it's taking away that opportunity for them to actually express what they want known about them in that period of time, isn't it? Correct. Yeah, so by us actually asking what pronouns do you use, mm-hmm. it gives choice back to that person yes. and empowering. That's right. Uh, it, it, I, I'm like Liz in terms of, um, and, and I, I'd imagine with a lot of, I'm like a lot of cisgendered people where um, I didn't see how it connected to me. Mm-hmm. The irony is I've actually realised um, since starting to think about it more how uh, often I get misgendered via email correspondence because my name's Jesse, so yeah. uh, I get Mrs. Spur a lot, and <laughs> and so I guess in a simple functional way, it's it's a very yeah. simple thing that um, that isn't happening anymore because I'm using my pronouns in my email. There signatures. you go. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but you would be recommending to any of our audience listening to put their pronouns up on their socials, uh, yeah. and when they are communicating in any way as a sign of solidarity. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. And it is just about normalising it. And, yeah, it is an act of being of allyship. Yeah, and I, you know, I wear a pronoun badge at work a lot of the time just so it's there, it's open, people see it and they're like, okay, like, and it's just, we just want it to not become a thing, not be a thing, it just is. Great. Yeah. Right, let's dig into um, number three, more about not making assumptions. Um, what are some of the things that you hear as healthcare professionals where people assume things and then either unintentionally or intentionally disrespect people who are gender diverse? Yeah, I suppose, you know, assumptions are made all the time. We all make assumptions internally many times per day probably. Um, But it's really important to be mindful of those assumptions that we make and to not make an assumption on somebody's sexuality or gender based on their appearance is often wrong, you know, and there are many different types of transition when you're gender diverse. There's social, medical and surgical and gender diverse people may do all three transitions or not, you know, and some people transition really early in life and some people transition later in life and all of those things will affect your appearance. And, you know, some people express their gender very differently from how they identify as well. So we can never just assume that we know somebody's gender or sexuality based on how they look. I'd love to just pick up on the point that you made about um, social, medical and surgical transitioning because Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us don't necessarily have a great understanding. I certainly didn't until probably the last 12 months, I must admit, in terms of what is involved in, I guess, the... Um, gender affirmation treatments as opposed to 
um, socially transitioning. So are you able to, happy to kind of step through... Yeah, some sure. of the treatment language that yeah of course there. so social transition is um well exactly what it refers to is when you change social things about your appearance or how you are or how you express yourself to be, be more aligned with the gender that you identify with so people might change the way they dress um become more feminine or more masculine depending on how they identify, cut their hair, grow their hair, put makeup on, put earrings on, um, you know, remove body hair, um, change their name, change their pronouns with, you know, in public or with certain groups, that sort of thing. So that's the social transition. Medical transition is about um, hormone replacement therapy. So taking feminizing or masculinizing hormones to change um, some of the physical aspects of your body. Um, and that can take a couple of years for those changes to um, fully occur. And then the surgical transition is when people want to have surgical interventions um, to make their body more aligned with their gender identity. That's a, a really good point. And I guess in terms of just also thinking about the sort, the broad variation that we could see in any of those mixed together or Mm -hmm. in isolation is also we may be seeing people taking cross-sex hormones to more change their body to their the gender that they feel and that could be also in plus or minus in the context of having uh, received hormone blocking yes um, or puberty blocking therapy in the first place uh, or earlier in at, at the onset of puberty yes um which i guess brings all sorts of different points to where we're trying to go to which is not making assumptions based on the appearance that we see at the time exactly and i i think i'm still quite naive to a number of these things as i'm sure lots of people will be but um in talking to you before the podcast i think something that i hadn't thought of is that if you start hormones prepubescently you'll have a completely different experience than if you're 54 and you decide to transition uh, to a different gender or to a different identity. Yeah. Um, what are the kind of implications, I guess, for older people who make a decision to transition? Um, I guess, you know, it can be a lot harder for somebody um, who's, you know, a- an older age. Um, and that can also start with just their, their social environment. And, um, you know, they may have created this family or lived in a body as an identity that they've been pretending to be for many, many years or decades. And so change, you know, going through a gender transition at that late age, even socially and personally can be, you know, it can be tricky. Um, medically speaking, it can just um, make it more difficult for physical changes to occur. So it's, you know, if you start taking puberty blockers and things like that in your um, adolescent years or even before puberty hits, you know, you're going to have an easier physical transition down the track. Absolutely. I think that's a nice point to sort of move along to point four in our um, five things, which is only asking gender-related questions when it's actually relevant to the care that we're giving. Yeah. yeah. So um, a lot of the gender-diverse people that I, I speak with and, and work with talk about their experiences in, in healthcare and with healthcare professionals and having been asked really inappropriate 
sometimes disrespectful questions about whether they've had the surgery and who do they have sex with and how did they have sex and but being on the other side being a healthcare professional professional myself because I've thought about this a lot and I think you know when you're a patient accessing healthcare the power dynamic between the patient and the health professional is huge even myself when I've been a patient I've felt that power shift and it's kind of it's scary it's a scary place to be and it's a stressful place to be imagine being somebody who's gender diverse who's already you know got medical issues going on and then the added layer of the complexity of the gender identity and the distress in trying to access medical services so they might be asked a question by a medical professional that is relevant to the medical care or treatment but it's not explained why to the patient So it's really important that if you do need to ask questions that might be related to their gender or sex or whatever, you know, you know, like if you've got a trans male who's who's pregnant or, you know, somebody trans, I know that I'm not medical background at all, so I can't really speak to it very well, but I know that, you know, certain blood tests that you do, you'll be looking for certain levels and it's important to know what their gender is and what their um, gender assigned at birth was. But we need to explain that to the patient. We need to spell that out, why we're asking these questions and what it's for. And so essentially what you're saying is if I'm a trans person and I've got a horrific ear infection, yeah, you know, you wouldn't ask someone who's cisgendered who came in with an ear infection, who are you having sex with and where, <laughs> what's your, you know, how do you relate to gender? So if I've got an ear infection, it shouldn't matter Correct. any of those things. We just focus on the ear. But if there is something that is relevant, then ask in a respectful, curious um, and explanatory way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Beyond, I suppose, basically building rapport, I guess like any group that has, I guess, poorer outcomes in healthcare and also has societal stigmas and is having to try and challenge and, and create social change, Trans and gender diverse people, I'm assuming, get really, really tired of having to educate everyone that they run into as well. Yeah. I wanted to kind of really make a point of that as to why we're talking to you today um, from a clinician perspective and not someone with lived experience, which we definitely are doing in a future episode, but we're going to talk about different things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's something I do hear frequently is the healthcare professional using the patient as their educational tool um, when that person is supposed to be the patient. Beck, can you take us through your number five point, please? Yes. So um, it's important for people to know and understand that regardless of your personal beliefs and how you feel about gender diversity, um, you actually, as an employee in Queensland Health, have a duty and a responsibility to be respectful in your practice. Um, And that's just really important. I think beyond that as well, it's a critical part of the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia's Code of Conduct and Standards for Professional Practice. And they are things that we are signing every year when we renew our registration that we are competent in. Exactly. The impact of of not doing that is just so huge. I think people don't really have a good understanding of what the impact is on gender diverse people um, and the statistics that come along with with being gender diverse. So, you know, up to 11 in 100 people in Australia are actually gender diverse. So 
you know, how many patients will you see coming through the emergency department each day? How many of them are actually gender diverse and you don't know? 34% of gender diverse people hide their identity when accessing services. So, you know, I've gone into the reasons behind that previously. Um, they're three times more likely to experience depression and they're significantly more likely than um, gay men and women to experience physical and non-physical abuse. So we have a duty and responsibility as healthcare professionals um, to treat our gender diverse patients with respect and value and, you know, not discriminate. And there's a real humanity to this, isn't there? Like if we were just even looking at it purely as a from a clinical perspective us getting this right has massive ramifications for the mortality and morbidity and mental health of our trans and gender diverse people and so from that point of view alone we should really be trying to do more that's right and as you said it's humanity these are people these are real people you know like you and me so And I think that's a really nice place to sort of pull it together and wrap up. And if I could kind of summarise to a more generalisable point, in nursing we embrace advocacy and talk about advocacy as being a core part of our professional identity and role that is quite distinctly different to a lot of other health practitioners. But I think also it's a step beyond that as well because nurses come up repeatedly as one of the most if not the most trusted profession in society. So in 2022, it's not just good enough to be an advocate at work, but it's a basic competency to be a good ally in society. That's right. And you actually had that as your number six, even though this is a five things podcast. (laughs) For you, was don't underestimate the importance of being an ally. That's right. That's right. Allyship is so important. And it's easy to do in a lot of ways you know it can just be little visual cues like a pronoun badge or a rainbow lanyard um calling out inappropriate offensive jokes supporting your gender diverse colleagues um you know attending events that sort of thing taking the time to educate yourself it doesn't take you know how long do you spend online shopping you know maybe spend half an hour reading some online resources about gender diversity so that you have a better understanding. Your five things today, number one was know what it is and what it isn't, what it means. Number two, the importance of pronouns, name and language. So if people got straight off this podcast and put that on their socials, that would have a profound effect. Number three, don't make assumptions, ask questions, be curious and kind and compassionate. Number four, only ask gender-related questions in health when it's absolutely relevant. Number five, you actually have a legal duty and responsibility as an employee to be inclusive and respectful. And we're definitely hoping a compassionate human response as well. And you're the only person we're going to let have a number six, which is (laughs) don't underestimate the value and importance of being an ally. Because I think that one's for life, not just for the podcast. Thank you so much, Beck, for your time and helping us to be better clinicians and better people. No problems. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thanks, Beck. The Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital Five Things Nursing Podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the First Nations owners of the lands we now tread. We pay respect to their elders laws, customs and creation spirits. 
We recognize that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at LizCrow2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things 